Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 8, The Sound of Her Wings, was published in July 1989. The art is by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III again, and it features the first appearance of everyone's favorite character, Franklin. Yes, everyone's favorite character, the unforgettable Franklin. Uh, this is it, Brent. We have reached the last issue in the first story arc of Sandman. And I think this is a pretty nice coda that really wraps up Dream's emotional arc and in some ways resets us, resets Dream, uh, looking ahead to a new story arc and many story arcs to come. It's pretty exciting to be here. I, when we started this project, this seemed like so far off in the future. And here we are. Yeah, and it's a very different uh, issue. Uh, this coda is just very different in tone, particularly from what we were going through, the harrowing experience of um, last issue, but even more so the issue before that in the diner. But this is what I very much always remember about the beginning of Sandman. I remember the first couple panels of the first issue, and I remember the first... Well, I remember most of this issue um, in my memory. There was a note that I think is interesting um, in the annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger. He had a note from Neil Gaiman's note in the script in which Neil said, quote, This is a really quiet issue, slow paced, not particularly exciting either visually or in terms of story. But if they've stuck with us this far, they'll stay with us for this one, too. It'll be a change of pace, but it's a one off. And it's the one I've been looking forward to writing since we began, which I think is, uh, you know, says a lot about where it's at and also where Neil as the creator of all these characters or the adapter of all of these characters in the case of other parts of the DC universe, he's sucked in like destiny that we've talked about, um, kind of where his head is at. Yeah. And also clearly thinking of this first story arc as action packed, right? As full of conflict and, uh, and physical or at least physically representable conflict between two people, two characters or, or, or more than two characters, which is, you know, often how we think of a superhero comic book story, but is not how I think of Sandman. And this issue actually, in fact, feels more like Sandman to me. And uh, that'll be something fun. That'll be a topic we can take up in our next episode, which will be the wrap-up episode for this story arc, which is going to be a lot of fun and really exciting. But this issue opens in Washington Square Park in Manhattan, and it is a beautiful summer day. There's not a cloud in the sky, and some young men are kicking a soccer ball around. One of them is Franklin, and Dream is sitting alone and feeding the pigeons. And he's interrupted when the soccer ball comes flying his way, and he catches it in one hand without even bothering to look at it. And there's a great bit here where he doesn't even realize that he's caught the soccer ball or even that the ball exists at all or that there are other people here. He's pretty preoccupied, Dream is. And just the art is so much lighter on these first few pages. And it's, again, a great departure from the prior issue. Um, there was a really fascinating thing that I was unaware of. Um, and the annotated Sandman again by Leslie Klinger brought to my attention, apparently in the original script, the ball is a basketball and the kids are black. So Franklin is not just some white dude. He is a black kid who is playing with a basketball with his friends. And, 
the soccer ball is i i don't know why the decision was made to to change things up in terms of either the color of the kids themselves or in terms of the ball but i wonder if it's just because it's easier given the setting that they the artist uh, had an easier time figuring out what to do with a soccer ball with having it kick or they just really like the word punt because the word punt appears a lot <laughs> this is a really fascinating note because I was maybe a little confused about the soccer ball. I thought uh, this is something that is slipping in because Neil Gaiman is is British and over there they play soccer or, of course, what they would call it is, is football, even though this seems a little bit out of place in America in the 1980s, where a basketball certainly would make a lot more sense, except that it's in Washington Square Park where there is no basketball court uh, and also basketball courts in, in cities. There's one literally across the street. I can see out the window right now uh have fences around them so that the ball doesn't do what it's going to have to do at the end of the uh, of the story here and so yeah guys kicking around a soccer ball in the unfenced in washington square park uh, makes a lot more sense for the logistics there but i wonder what else went into that that choice it's very interesting well, and I'm, maybe the decision was to not have fences. Maybe the decision was because of, I mean, there's a lot of flight motif and kind of expansiveness going on here. So they didn't want to have the fence in the art and therefore also the perhaps racial connotations that can come up if you've got a bunch of black kids behind a fence relative to your extremely white albino protagonist who is not in a fence. Maybe they just wanted to not confuse the issue with any additional undesired kind of motifs or themes creeping in. But because um, the fact that it's a soccer ball and a bunch of white kids and I was not as familiar with New York City, um, I'm not that familiar now still, but Washington Square Park is not what originally came to mind when I was reading this way back when um, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago. And so I originally thought that this was perhaps a depiction of the, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris and that this was actually Dream is hanging out in Paris when all this is occurring. Yes, yeah, certainly. Also, when I read it in the same circumstances, I just assumed it was London. And so the soccer ball didn't really jump out to me. But now I have logged uh, hundreds of hours in Washington Square <laughs> Park uh, over the, the, the intervening decades. And so this jumped out immediately. And I will say that uh, I pulled up a, an image of the the arch, the Washington Square arch that is the establishing shot here. And yeah, it's exact. Uh, what What is represented here is exactly like it. And in fact, even the buildings in the background are perfect. The number of windows, the number of stories, the the change in the, the, the type of window from the third story to the fourth story in the building on the right, all of that is, is spot on. And so you can envision the artist sitting actually at a particular bench in Washington Square Park and and seeing that view. I don't know if that's actually what happened, but that's a cool job if you can get it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that is a cool job. And that I mean that probably does explain then why it was converted to a soccer ball is just because the artist probably did not want to when trying to do this recreation of the specific setting that was either in his mind's eye or literally in both of his eyes. 
um, want to add fence link and hoops and stuff because we don't see any uh with, with soccer sometimes you know you don't necessarily need the goal if you're not if you're just kind of kicking the ball around versus basketballs while you can just dribble them it, it's not nearly the same unless there's some kind of ring yeah yeah passing a basketball back and forth is just not fun but doing that with a soccer ball is totally fun or at least it is for me perhaps because i have no dexterity in my feet so it's 100 <laughs> a challenge well let's let's get to what is actually happening here uh and really get into the, the heart of the story here, because in the background now, we see a gothic pixie dream girl approaching our protagonist. And uh, in this shot, I think an entire cultural epic was born, right? <laughs> this is death, it's Dream's sister, the one Roderick Burgess was trying to imprison when he caught Dream instead at the start of our saga. Gosh, I don't remember what it was like to see death for the first time, but she is iconic. She She really is. And the fact that in this first shot we have of her, she clearly is smiling while Dream is clearly frowning and looking a lot like Robert Smith from The Cure. Yes, the whole issue. He looks exactly like Robert Smith. And that very last panel basically, I think, is just lifted from the liner jackets <laughs> of uh, the liner notes from some Cure album. <laughs> and I've heard a couple uh, over the years stories you know, secondhand, or um, I feel like I've read them, but maybe I haven't, of the inspiration for the how Dream appears. And the one I always remembered in my head is that Neil was at some cafe in Paris, and that there was some waitress who came up to him. And again, I, this might be because my brain originally was thinking that this issue began in Paris, uh, that there was some waitress who looked like death end up looking and he just uh, liked the look of this very pale young woman who is very smiley wearing her onk but wearing all black otherwise um, but there's actually a note in the annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger in which Neil Gaiman had written to Mike Dragenberg the artist of the issue well the artist along with Malcolm Jones III that he had showed Dave McKeon one of the sketches that uh, Mike had done of death and afterward Dave McKeon and Neil went down to a pancake house and the waitress at the pancake house was a young, thin, dark haired American who looked exactly like the drawing, quote, even down to the T-shirt and the onk. Now, that was weird. I almost asked if she had a day job, but, well, what would death be doing in a Chelsea pancake house? <laughs> this story is awesome. And, I, you know, I have to question the veracity of it, I guess, as we always should with stories like this. But Alan Moore has exactly the same story about John Constantine, right? He says that he actually, after he had written John Constantine, after he'd invented him in Swamp Thing, he later met the actual John Constantine in some some place in, in London, right? Saw him like coming out of some bar or something. And uh, it wasn't some guy who looked like John Constantine, according to Alan Moore. It actually was his character come to life. So I don't know, maybe all these creators actually do have this power to do this. Uh, we need to get ourselves some of that. Yeah, that'd be great. Although with Alan Moore, I always think that probably it's just that he vibrates at such a frequency that he's able to see into multiple dimensions at once. And so he probably actually is interacting with John Constantine whenever he wants to interact with John Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is probably true. Alan Moore could do whatever he wants. I think we all know that. Well, well, death here is, uh, is very much reminded of the pigeon feeding scene in Mary Poppins. And since Dream hasn't seen it, you know, because of that whole being in prison for 70 years thing, she explains the gist of Mary Poppins to him. It's about a banker who doesn't have time for 
his family or for living or for anything. And Mary Poppins comes down from the clouds and she shows him what's important. Fun, flying kites, all that stuff. And this is what this character is for. This is what death is for in this story. She, out of all of us, is best equipped to tell us what life is about, right? Because she is death incarnate. Uh, Also to tell us what life should be, right? What we should do with the little time that is allotted to each of us. And that's the real question here, right? For Dream is what should he be doing now that he's not imprisoned anymore? Should he just be sitting here moping? Or is there maybe something better he could do with his life? How does he find his bliss, if you will, and, and chase after it? I love the description of the banker being quote, utterly a banker for Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is awesome. Uh, I have not seen Mary Poppins in far too long, and it turns out my wife has never seen it. So uh, now that we've read this this week, I think this is, uh, this is how my weekend is shaping up. All right. Well, Death, of course, is here looking for Dream, right? She's here to be a friend to Dream, to listen to his troubles. And Dream explains that while he'd been imprisoned, all he thought about was revenge, And then he took his revenge on the younger Burgess, and he says that it felt fine, I suppose, but it didn't feel as satisfying as I had expected. And he goes on to say that once his quest ended, once he'd recovered his possessions, once he'd regained his strength, he felt purposeless. And there is some melancholy here, right? I guess we've we've all felt a little sad after binging seven seasons of a TV show, but... (laughs) But death is not going to let Dream just sit around and and mope because the story that he's been a part of is now ended. And so instead, she gives him a real good scolding. She calls him the stupidest, most self-centered, appallingest excuse for an anthropomorphic personification on this or any other plane. Uh, Again, Neil Gaiman here bringing out uh, all the insults I wish I had thought of. It's a great scene because it is literally two full pages of Dream just monologuing about uh, reflecting on what's happened in the prior seven issues, um, but also how he feels about it. And then finally at the top of, you know, page three of this, what she simply says, have you finished? And he says, yes. So you get the feeling, I mean, this is a great, it reads a lot like a brother-sister conversation in which she knows him well enough to know that it's best to just let him go. And wait until he stops himself and then interrupt and scold him rather than interrupting before that. Cause there's this, they clearly have a dynamic where they have a long relationship with each other and they, they kind of understand each other's rhythms in that sense. And she pulls the bread away from him that he's using to feed the pigeons and chucks at his head. Yeah. And it's a baguette, right? So also reinforcing the sense that this is supposed to be Paris. Uh, you know, if you've never been to, to New York, you could continue to make these, uh, these assumptions here. I do really love their, their sibling relationship, right? I think you're absolutely right to, to point to the way that, that she knows him so well, but it points to a type of knowledge that you have from growing up together. And it kind of suggests, I guess, that even though these are anthropomorphic personifications of abstract concepts, that maybe they were kids at some point growing up in a house together. That's how it feels anyway. So that's a a question that I don't know if we'll ever get answered, but uh, I could certainly envision a spinoff series about exactly that, a kind of family sitcom of uh, the endless living together. In addition to him moping, he also, as as we mentioned, he's unpacking the experience of the last seven issues and, and how he's processing it right now and kind of the loneliness or hole he feels in 
and what to do next. But there's an interesting bit in here where he also talks about his experience dealing with John D. You know, he had just finished talking about the revenge that he had and took on the son of his original captor. Um, but then he talks about the ruby and he says, a human had been using it. I hate to think what it, what toil it must have taken on his mind, on his soul. And then he goes on to explain, you know, well, here's what happened last issue. We had talked a little bit about the mercy that he decided to take on John D to put him back in. <laughs> While Arkham Asylum may not be a mercy to put someone in, really, it probably is the proper place in the DC Universe context for John D to be, not just as a punishment, but just so that he could feel home and secure, which is the way John seemed to have referenced that place, Dr. Destiny. So here it's interesting to see, again, Dream kind of saying to death, and he has no reason to put on a show here. He clearly is not. So this is actually how he interprets it. And it's that the ruby and possessing the ruby did such damage and toil to the mind and soul so we have two separate and distinct things here that are being mentioned in the, in kind of the cosmology of the DC universe, that there is a mind and separate from that, the idea of a soul. There's a lot going on there. Right. This certainly does give us the answer we were looking for in the last episode about his, his motivations here. And that's fantastic. But yeah, also the cosmological questions here, right? There are souls. And of course, that's, we've been seeing that throughout this, uh, this arc here. We're going to get more cosmological questions or or at least uh i guess glimpses into the cosmology that neil gaiman is creating for his speculative world here in this issue i mean because we're here with death right so we're going to get some sense of of what happens when people die and it raises a lot of questions for me uh that i don't know if we'll ever quite get answered but for me this is one of the real joys of reading a series like this is trying to understand the universe that the the creator is inventing here uh, it's so much fun. And of course, I'm very much interested in the question of, of who we are, uh, our identities, uh, you know, something sort of inherent about our nature and how that ties in with, uh, with the decisions that we make, the choices that we make and, and our morality, our values, our, our virtues and, and, and so on. Uh, and the clear idea that there are souls here, but that they can be damaged through this ruby and presumably then through other types of forces is really interesting. And we'll see a lot more as we go forward, the idea of when Dream does experience regret at damage, maybe not accepting responsibility for the damage that he brings to other people, but at least when he does versus does not have any awareness of the effect uh, secondary or intentionally or tertiary or not to mortals. Well, that's going to be a major theme going forward. And it is great to see him here just actively reflecting on it. Well, let's, let's move on with the, the plot here because death has an actual day job, as you pointed out before, Brent, and she needs to get to it, right? She's got regular hours. She needs to keep a time clock to punch, I guess. Uh, but Dream is going to tag along with her, and that's going to be the real story that we get in this issue. But before they leave the park, one of the the soccer players, it's, it's Franklin. Franklin hits on death, uh, and she says that she'll definitely see him again very soon. Uh, and if you're taking notes, this is what we call foreshadowing, right? <laughs> Also, the calling a random woman you don't know at all a fox does not appear to be the best way to approach things. But Franklin seems to think that maybe it's actually working, given Death saying that she'll see him again soon. 
Uh, yeah, right. I wondered how much of this is that uh, time has not been kind to this type of interaction, or how much of this is that Neil Gaiman's not quite sure what uh, an American teenager would say to a gothic pixie dream girl and settled <laughs> on Fox, and that's what doesn't seem quite right to us. I do have to note, though, I love that Franklin has the party going on in the front and the back for that hair. Yeah, historically accurate hair. Gosh, uh, I mean, I had that haircut in nineteen eighty nine for sure, and I wish that you and other friends had told me to to stop. But uh, but it was a moment. It was a cultural moment. I don't regret it. Well, you were too busy talking about the virtues of longboard versus shortboard when it comes to pretending like you're a skater. Right. Yes. Had lots of skateboards, was not good at skating at all. (laughs) Well, Death and Dream, they go and visit the apartment of an old Jewish man named Harry, who's playing a violin while he lays on the couch. And of course, even though Harry is speaking to death and he's, he's he's talking about music and his younger days harry is very much dead and death is here for him in in some capacity or for some purpose maybe we should say and and harry says now he says the the beginning of the shema prayer which is hero israel the lord our god the lord is one and you will love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might. Uh, so again, here we have soul being brought up as a, as a component of, of our nature that's being separate from another component, though here it's heart rather than mind. But, you know, it's a similar type of cosmology as, uh, as what we see dream saying. And of course, we should say, right, these are actually the lines from this Jewish prayer, which, which comes from book six of, of Deuteronomy. But I find this super fascinating here because Harry doesn't place any particular conviction behind this prayer, but he's doing it because his father always said that this prayer guaranteed you a place in heaven if you believe in that sort of thing. And now that he's said the prayer, Harry says, so I'm dead. Now what? And death's response is, well, now you find out, Harry. And so I guess this probably is, this conversation is a good place to stop and talk a little bit more about the cosmology which we've had a ton of in this first story, right? We've had up to this point, a lot of Christianity, uh, though it's all really been filtered through, uh, I guess what I would say, the early modern English demonology that owes most of its ideas actually to medieval Islamic scholars. Uh, we've we've met Lucifer, a character from Christian and Jewish Jewish scriptures, and we've been to hell. Uh, we've met figures from Indo-European paganism, right? The fates in their Greek persona, but also equating them with the Norn in their Scandinavian persona and really just kind of tying them to the abstract notion of, of witches in general. Uh, but here, right, we do see that ourselves exist after our bodies expire, at least for a little while. But we also have death quietly not answering the question of whether there's an afterlife, whether there actually is a heaven, right? She's sly about that by just saying, well, you're going to find out, but it's not my place to tell you. So what is Gaiman doing here, Brent? I mean, are is this an instance of all religions being true in this universe, or is it that none of them are true, but are maybe reflections of some other truth or, or some other thing altogether? I think he's very much trying to have his cake and eat it too, where he is being respectful of a number of religions and really taking heart and letting us care about everyone and their different kind of approaches based on their individual faiths to their own experience, but not actually get after, you know, we don't see in this issue 
spoiler, I'm not sure we see ever like what there is after, you know, that, that Harry finds out versus anyone else. There's some later discussion that, that in later issues, I believe, or maybe in Death's miniseries where a little bit more is said about this, but we never visually see a depiction of, is there a heaven? If so, what does it look like? So I think it's just a matter of trying to create a more universal story that encompasses any number of religious faiths um, within it. And by doing that, he is not putting off any individual readers. Also, he is then able to weave it into, again, the DC universe cosmology without getting after kind of big questions. Because in some sense, maybe it doesn't matter for the purpose of the story too, because as we get into it, you get a life and you should try to make the most of that life that you have. And there's something after that. And the issue is very much about like, don't fear what comes after that perhaps, but still make the most of what you have going now. And I think that it's a very optimistic view in that sense, but it is interesting and it is nice to have this moment where this, this uh, old Jewish man, um, after he dies, he says the, the Shema one last time. And it is said all the time for people who are Jewish, but it is something specifically you are supposed to say at the end of your life as well. So, you know, he maybe just missed it on the one hand. On the other hand, maybe he didn't because he has not moved to the next place. And I think it's very interesting that the panel we have here is when she says, now's when you find out Harry and half her face is in darkness and the other is in light. And it's not, it doesn't read to me as sinister. It reads to me as kind of the unknown, like what's in the shadow, what's off to the side. It, it doesn't read to me as, you know, this is ominous, which I think it maybe would if there was maybe even just a different character. Maybe it's not the actual art. It's what we've even set up in the few pages we've had to this point. Yeah, it's a real Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi depiction here of her face, half in light, half in shadow. But what she is saying, uh, and certainly from and certainly we can extrapolate from how she has been speaking with Harry there's nothing malevolent or malicious here in fact if anything death seems to be benevolent and in some ways it seems that we'll we'll talk about this as this as this issue progresses and as the whole saga progresses it seems in some ways that her purpose here is actually just to comfort people after they've died to kind of explain the situation to them. That seems to be like a big part of her role. She's kind of the the afterlife welcome wagon, right? And so she is trying to be nice here, even though the art, yes, could in a certain way be depicted as being malevolent if she'd been given uh, a, a different line. And it'd be interesting, right? Because you can imagine this being in a, in a script, right, for a, a TV show or or a movie and the actor having to make a choice of, of, of do you say, well, now you find out as if that's a cool thing that you're going to get to do or if it's a scary thing that you have to do uh, and that you're not going to like the answer, uh, you know, is this wonder fiction or is this weird fiction? Right, might be a way to to put it. It's it's very interesting. It's very well done here. And this depiction of death. I mean, as we're recording this, we are shortly after kind of the wrap up of the big Marvel Cinematic Universe Infinity Gauntlet plot. And I remember from when I picked up the Infinity Gauntlet storyline comics back in the '90s. Um, there Thanos is doing what he's doing because he's in love with the Marvel Universe version of death, or at least one of the personifications of death in that universe. And that version is the normal, like, I want people to be dead because then they're in my kingdom kind of death versus here. She just is like the nicest Charon ever 
where she just is there to help usher people to what's next in the most pleasant way possible and also is not extracting any kind of toll. There's You don't need two coins for her. There's no indication of that. And of course, we have seen already that many elements of Greek mythology are true, at least in some sense. So I do wonder if we will eventually actually see the character of Karen, the, the ferryman of the, the dead here as well. And we'll see see if there are other other bits of lore about what happens in the afterlife that also are are true, are materially realized in this universe, even while there is this member of the endless death. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to see how Gaiman weaves all of these things in, how he how he draws on the real rich tradition of many human cultures, uh, depictions of these sorts of things, while also doing something new. Uh, but before we leave Harry's apartment, there is actually one more thing I want to talk about, and, and really it's a question. Above his couch, there's a framed painting of four nude figures dancing in a circle. And this looks very familiar to me, but I cannot think of what it is. And so I'm hoping Leslie Klinger has something to say about it in the annotated Sandman. Unfortunately, he does not. He does give information about the particular song that Harry is singing when they show up. And he gives some additional lyrics from it, but there's no discussion at all of the art in Harry's apartment. So it does look very familiar to me. It feels like the kind of thing that I've seen many times in art museum catalogs, but I can't quite place it. I mean, if if they were wearing traditional garb of ballerinas and and they were clearly more female, I would think that maybe it was a Degas almost, because that's what I always think about when I see a ballerina. But um, I I don't know what it is. Well, we'll have to make a call to listeners to to chime in on the forum and let us know what this is, because I am certain that it is is something. And I actually feel very much like I have seen it in the museum in Brussels, even. But I just cannot place what it actually is. And I did do some looking around through my own photos of of various museum trips. But yeah, I would love to love to know what it is. Well, we can we can leave that issue behind. We can leave that for listeners to help us out with. And as they're leaving to head to the next person, the one note that Klinger does make, um, in additional, there's a little bit about the uh, Shema um, he has, um, not a lot, but uh, he notes as they're leaving and heading to the next person that neither death nor dreams feet appear to touch the ground. Uh, in many of these, uh, in many of the panels, we don't actually see their feet. Feet are, I think, kind of a pain for a lot of artists to draw. I can't draw anything, so everything's a pain for me to draw. <laughs> so I hadn't really noticed it, but here clearly where we see them on the set of stairs, their feet do seem to be hovering above it. He also notes that in none of the panels uh, are there any shadows cast by either dream or death. Um, in many of the panels, there's not shadows cast by anyone because of the way the light's working, but there are some places where there distinctly are shadows, as we'll see in the next couple pages. And again, dream and death do cast no shadow. So I think it brings the idea of them being kind of otherworldly and the fact that they're not leaving a trace. And so them just appearing in Harry's apartment, you know, there's not a matter of them having to like open a door or anything. They're just basically um, apparating wherever they need to be. Right. And we see them disapparating when they're leaving Franklin as well. Right. So although they do exist materially in some way, you know, for us to see them uh, in this visual story, they the rules, the physical rules of the universe also don't necessarily have to apply to them uh, because they are they're kind of standing outside of all of that. Well, we're going to we're going to head now to the next person that death has to collect. 
Esme is an amateur comedian trying to make it, and so she's trying out some very bad material during an afternoon session at a largely empty comedy club. And the bit that she's doing is about Batman, and although it is bad, it's pretty fun, though, because Gaiman imagines what a comedian would say about Batman in a world where Batman is a real person and people don't actually know his identity, right? It's not that this is a joke about Batman as a character. It's about Batman as, like, a real thing in your world. Yeah, and that's a lot of great fun and world-building to have, where it's just commentary on, there's a man who dresses like a bat to fight crime. You're a comedian who exists in that world. There's no way you don't try a Batman joke. Um, it may be in your material that's not very good when you're still coming up, but I feel like everyone's got that the way everyone has something in our world about airplane food. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Batman is the DC Universe equivalent of airplane food, I guess. I'm not sure that's a, a simile that I will, will, will stand by, but – here, the point is that Esma dies on stage. The, the microphone electrocutes her, and she wants to know why she had to die, right? She says that she knows that she would have made it if only she'd had a few more years. But Death just says that Esma's time was up. And that's also a real interesting cosmological point here, that we just have an allotted amount of time, and there's a kind of countdown clock for all of us, uh, perhaps no matter what choices we make. But we don't really get any particular answer to that question that is is subtly raised here. So they leave Esma, and Death says that it, it gets her down, that people are not keen to see her. They're not happy when she shows up. She says that the people fear the sunless lands, even though they enter Dream's realm each night. And so here's a question that I have about this, right? Are the sunless lands Death's realm? And is that where people go when they die? And I... We, we're left not knowing or whether the sunless lands are like the river sticks, just perhaps a, a, a place you pass through. No, whether the sunless lands are actually her land, does she have a, a mighty palace there the way dream once had and wants to one day have again in the dreamlands, the way Lucifer and his fellow members of the triumvirate do in hell? You know, is there something in the sunless lands obviously not a sun but are there many moons is there is there good lighting we we don't know and we don't know whether someone dwells there or not or if it that is more of an existential thing i think we're left to think that it's either something you're passing through to the next thing or it's meant in a vaguer way than when we talk about dreamlands and dreamlands are actually a place, an ever shifting place, but a place nonetheless in the context of these comics. Well, I like this picture that you're painting here of the Sunless Lands as a kind of clearinghouse, as a kind of storage facility, a sort of warehouse, I guess, for souls who then are going to go to some other place. This is where all souls go after their bodies have expired, but then the specific afterlife they're going to get may have something to do with who they are, their cultural identities, their religious identities, religious beliefs, and then perhaps also something to do with behavior and choices, if that's a part of their religious belief, right? So some people then are going to go to hell, which is a place where we have seen souls uh, trapped, right? We have seen souls in hell, so we know that has to be a place that souls can go after they die. And then perhaps there, there could be really any number of places like hell based on an individual's uh, own 
culture and own own beliefs, and that the Sunless Lands are just kind of the clearinghouse for that. I think that makes sense because that way Neil Gaiman can have the idea that all religions are true in some sense, right? So that we can see all of this uh, working in the cosmology here. And in the Annotated Sandman, uh, Leslie Klinger references that the phrase the sunless lands is an old image of the afterlife. Uh, he gives a couple examples. One is from 1801, which given that it's an old image of the afterlife is interesting that it only goes back to 1901 for his first example, but yeah, yeah I would not actually call that old, but okay. <laughs> um, that uh, Howard V. Sutherland wrote in Jacinta in 1901, quote, when comes the day that I go down to sunless lands and sleep, ah, then I beg ye grant to me the love so hard a winning here above. And he also references another example, though, from 1835, um, where Wordsworth had written in the, I'm going to bitcher this, uh, extempore effusion, effusion upon the death of James Hogg. Wordsworth had written, quote, how fast has brother followed brother from sunshine to the sunless land. So there's a couple examples from the last 200 years of references to the sunless land, but uh, references that it is an older phrase than that. I'm sure it actually comes from classical literature, though it's not one that I'm thinking, uh, though it's not one that I'm remembering Ovid using, who's really my main source here, since uh, Ovid, uh, his book, The Metamorphoses, is uh, the book that I read to learn Latin as an undergrad and and then did again uh, in my, my master's degree as well. But I, yeah, it would not surprise me to, to learn that this is actually straight out of Homer. Uh, about to reread the Iliad, so uh, I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> yeah, check check on that. So then we cut to a vignette. After they leave Esme on the way to the next vignette, as you mentioned, Death is explaining that she is somewhat disappointed that people don't look more forward to meeting her and that they're so scared. They appear in the corner of a room with a crib with a mother leaning over it, making baby noises at the baby. And then she leaves to go get a bottle and Death walks up, picks up the baby. And then the baby says in perfect English, but... Is that all there was? Is that all I get? And Death simply replies, yes, I'm afraid so. And then we're left with a crushing scene as the mother comes back into an empty room with just the body of the dead baby. And I think this really hits on the head. The, you know, everyone gets a period of time. I thought the phrase had been used in this issue, but it's not until later um, issues um, where she explicitly says, you get what everyone gets, you get a lifetime, is always what I think of. And that's what I thought she said, even in this panel, until I last read it. And I realized, no, that phraseology hadn't been coined yet, but it's still the same idea. And it's very sad, um, particularly with the image we're left with, with the mother who has just lost her, her child. But it's not, you're not left feeling afraid or concerned with the child. And again, I think this is the strength of how they've decided to depict the anthropomorphic character of death here. Yeah, this scene was really hard for me. It was difficult for me to read. It was difficult for me to take notes on for this episode. And uh, I was I, I had forgotten that this scene was in this issue, even though this is an issue that I, I tend to think of having a vividly remembering over decades and decades. And I, I wondered about the choice to include this, you know, not whether or not it was a good idea, but I actually just have to imagine that DC, the editorial staff and DC as a publisher probably had to, to, to I, I imagine they hesitated about 
depicting uh, the death of an infant here, presumably, you know, from from SIDS, and and why Gaiman would have insisted on having this element in the story. Yeah, and I don't. I think it maybe is just preemptively because of the way sometimes when people think about death and they think about frustrations with the end of life. And it's one thing for some of the depictions we get later where people appear to maybe either be the victims of violence or commit suicide or have lived a longer life. And so the decision here to head on confront the idea that uh, a person dies who has less, you know, has has almost no time uh, to them. It is it, and of, and this is following on having seen Harry expire uh, just from old age, from the natural causes of of old age, and I guess to get the contrast here, and I guess in that sense, this is true to life. Death can come to death will come to all of us, and it can come uh, really at any moment. And I guess if the if the point here, the point of this issue is to remind Dream, but then more specifically to remind us as readers that we should make the most of that time, then this is underscoring that point as difficult as it is to to read this little scene. Yeah. And that I think that's a really good point, Glenn. It, it underscores kind of, you know, your life is what you make of it. You, you get one um, as far as we're aware. And so make the most of it because, you know, this small baby only got this amount. So, you know, what are you doing with the fact that you've got more than that? Because to be able to read this comic, everyone who's reading this has more than that. It could be that anyone reading this is not necessarily as when we first read it, we were not in our early 20s. So other than this baby we were younger than everyone else who passed away. So could think like, Oh, well I still have more years. Even if I accidentally while telling jokes about Batman get electrocuted, that's not the case here. So it, it maybe is the decision to make it very clear and pull in all members of the audience, including as a comic book, many younger readers perhaps as well to hit to them. The idea that, like, no, this is for everyone, and you need to also be aware of your own life and making the most of it. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? We don't have demographic data in front of us, but I have to imagine that 50% or slightly more of the readership were adolescents, were teenagers like us who can't necessarily really identify with people like Harry just because, you know, being old, right? That's a whole other world for you when you're, when you're 15, 16, even, you know, 17, even really in your 20s, right? That seems like a whole other world. We have passed happily into to middle age now and can, I guess, now empathize with everybody forwards and backwards, uh, which is both a blessing and a curse when, when reading literature, I suppose. Well, let's, let's move on from, from this and, and because we do have actually more deaths to, to get to. And, and we're actually going to get these now as a montage sequence while Dream muses uh, over these these images. And we see a suicide in an office building. We see a death in a hospital, a shooting victim in an alley, a heroin overdose, uh, a skyscraper window washer falling from scaffolding, and a woman bleeding to death at the, the bottom of some stairs while a mysterious figure looms in the doorway at the top. And, and always for each of these deaths, there is the sound of her wings, right? The sound of death's wings. Although this is a, a gruesome sequence and, and it is a sequence of people dying, uh, it is a, a really beautiful, a really uh, evocative sequence of images as well. 
And all while this is happening, Dream is thinking about, particularly what Death had said about how folks react to her. And he remembers when mortals uh, were not as scared to confront her. And specifically, there's a quote included here. Death is before me today, like the recovery of a sick man, like going forth into a garden after sickness. And I did not off the top of my head identify what that was a quote from. Since it's Neil Gaiman, it could be a quote from almost anything. But it was, according to Leslie uh, Klinger's Annotated Sandman, the text is from the Pyramid Texts, now commonly called the Book of the Dead, which was found carved on the walls and sarcophagi of the pyramids at Saqqara during the 5th and 6th dynasties of Egypt's Old Kingdom around 2400 before the Common Era. So I did not know that, but that's what they're hearkening back to then is ancient Egypt, by our standards, ancient Egypt. And so I guess that also then ties in with the Ankh motif that, that Death is wearing her Ankh, which is originally um, depicted all over the place in uh, ancient and older Egyptian carvings and art. Right, and, and meant to symbolize the, the continuum or the continuity of life and death as being part of a, of a sort of single, uh, a single spectrum as part of our experiences. I did actually recognize this because this particular translation is from, uh, is published in a Joseph Campbell book that I know very well that you and I both read when we had checked out of our public library, uh, <laughs> as, as teenagers. And the reason, of course, I recognize that it was a Joseph Campbell quotation is because I also sometimes use this passage. Uh, when I'm teaching uh, Western Civ, if I'm doing that uh, through the lens of of religion, this is actually a text that I will I will pull up because it has such a different attitude towards death than the one that we have. And in fact, I might actually like to read a little bit more uh, of it to to emphasize that point. So the the next stanza is: Death is before me today, like the scent of myrrh, like sitting under a sail in a good wind. Death is before me today, like the course of a stream, like a man returning home from a war galley. Death is before me today, like the home that a man longs to see after years spent as a captive. And this this is beautiful imagery, but it is a very strange poem for most of us who don't think of death as a gift or as a good thing. But that certainly is the point of view of this poet, right? That that he is comparing death. He's using all these similes to compare death to other things that are really beautiful in life. Uh, things that are a boon, right? Recovering from a sickness, coming home from war, um, having been returned to your home after having been enslaved for a period of time. Uh, even the image of sitting under a sail in a good wind just sounds like a pleasant way to spend an afternoon, but it's the <laughs> image it's the, it's the image of a merchant coming home, right? That this is all about, uh, about homecoming, about recovering in some way. And this is just not how we think of death in our culture. Well, death has one more appointment and we see the Washington Square Arch again. And now we know that death was not lying when she said that she would see Franklin again soon. Franklin chases a stray ball into the street and he is run over. And as death takes Franklin to see his body... Dream goes his own way. He's feeling restored now, and he has a lot of work to do to repair his kingdom. But he takes a few moments of solitude here in the park, and and from his pouch now he throws some dream sand into the air for the pigeons, and he hears the sound of her wings. And that's the last line of the issue, and it's it's the last line of this story arc. And also, this is where he looks exactly like Robert Smith from the liner notes of a Cure album. And here we see the sound of her wings as a rebirth into the next 
whatever. So instead of it being the closure of someone who has died, it is the ushering on of the next stage of whatever the person experienced. In this case, dream, the next stage of his life, uh, such as it is as an endless. But it also then lets us think back on what we've come bef- what we've seen before, that the death of her or the sound of her wings is something that is flying people off to the next experience, uh, whether that be reincarnation or heaven um, or something else, um, and that it not be something to be feared. But I wonder, Glenn, did Dream learn the right thing here? Because before he gets to this point to blissfully Robert Smith out and throw sand everywhere, he seems to focus on the fact that he's aware that death has responsibilities and a function. And then he very much embraces the idea of he has responsibilities and functions. Quote, there is much to do in my kingdom, much to restore, much to create. I have found the solace I sought, though not in the way I imagined. So is it that he's discovered that what makes him happy and that he needs to go do all these things? He is a creator. He should create. Or is it that he has discovered he has responsibilities and it's the fact that he has responsibilities and a task list of things to check off? Is that what's making him happy? This is a great question, right? Because this is the the heart of the, the issue here, the core of this story. And, you know, responsibility is a good word. And in fact, it is going to be a word that may actually, it's going to be a word that we're going to talk about a lot in in uh, conjunction with Dream and who he is. But I think the, the arc here is that Dream is feeling that he has no purpose, that there's no point to his existence at the beginning when he's just feeding the pigeons, because he has satisfied the purpose that he had, which was revenge and getting his stuff back. And now he's done that and isn't really sure what to do next. And of course, he should know what to do next because he actually does have a purpose, a function, set of responsibilities in life. But because while he was trapped in that prison for decade upon decade, he forgot about that. He wasn't actually thinking about getting back to the life that he leads, getting back to his normal functioning. He wasn't thinking about the about coming home from being a prisoner, like we saw in this Egyptian poem. He's just thinking about revenge. And once he gets that, once he takes his vengeance on the people who have wronged him and run off with his stuff, he doesn't even remember what his life actually was like. He doesn't remember how to have a real life. And I think that's what death has shown him, that he has a purpose, but more importantly, has shown him what a life looks like. And that having a purpose, uh, having connections to other people is a big part of that. And as the series goes, we'll have opportunities to explore a lot more this um, intersection of what is a life for an endless person thing, manifestation, cross-cut with what are the responsibilities, how much of those are overlapping, how much of those are the same, and what are different characters' views on do you exist because of your function versus do you exist separate from that, but you also have a function? Yeah, we're going to get a whole story arc that is exploring exactly that question. And it's a question that I guess is pertinent if you're a member of the Endless family, but it's also a question that's pertinent for us. And I'm looking forward to having those conversations when we get 
Gaiman's own take on how that how that works and see what lessons we can take uh, for our own lives, as is so explicitly the point in in very much of the Sandman, uh, specifically Neil Gaiman's oeuvre uh, more broadly and broadest of all all art ever, right? Um, and speaking of all art ever, let's let's jump into uh, our final segments here, talking about the cover art, the title, and, and picking out a, a favorite panel. And as we always do, let's start with the the cover art. Uh, this is a great Dave McKean cover here. It, it clearly is is Death who is displayed here. Uh, her facial features are obscured, but the ankh that she wears is highlighted. It almost seems to be glowing. And and also there there seem to be wings behind her. At least that's how I'm viewing that. You may have a different interpretation of that, but they're white and they almost look to me like white butterfly wings. Yeah, to me, it does look like a white almost butterfly or maybe even a dove wing over her left shoulder to the right side of the panel. Uh, I love the fact that it's a very 1980s flash dance kind of sweater. Oh, yeah. And the hair. And the and hair, the hair is, is so, so marvelous. Yeah. But I think what I like most about this cover might be the decision for what to put around the central image. So in all of the covers before, we've had a collection of items or we had the collection of hands last time. And here we just have what and it appears to likely be fake plants, but we, we have ivy or some other plant. Um, that's just filled all of the space there. My read on it is there's a couple different ways I think you can kind of interpret that. One is just kind of the refresh, uh, refreshing, like rejuvenation of, um, a new life here. It's not a collection of particularly early on. We had a collection of like specimens of dead things in jars. It's not that. Um, it's something kind of colorful and lush. It's also not being worried about things on the side. It's just focusing on, as many of the characters we've encountered this comic need to, you had your life and now it's done. So now your big question is, well, what is next? So if I met death because my mic is, 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 is live and I touch it accidentally now, then while I'll have many thoughts about everything else, the main thought I probably will have will be focusing on this person in front of me who is death as I'll understand it and what that means for what's next. I also like the the border a lot. Uh, it is this sort of glossy type of leaf. So yeah, it might be ivy or something. My uh, my leaf knowledge is is weak. I'll I'll confess. But the, you know, it is green, right? And it, for us on Earth, you know, green is a color that we are going to associate with life because you know all of our life begins with. Uh, with plants collecting energy from the sun, right through photosynthesis, which is what these leaves are are designed for. But leaves also, not every species of plant, but many of them, will drop their leaves in the winter time and then grow them again. And so, like the ankh, a leaf is kind of a, a symbol of the the cycle or circle of of life uh, in some ways. And it is a beautiful color contrast here. Uh, this is a great great cover. But what do you make of the the title here, right? The the sound of her wings. What are we meant to understand from the title? What comes to mind for me is when I think of wings, while they do have a distinct sound, I don't associate the sound of wings with my image of wings, if that makes sense. I associate the sound of flapping wings with before I see the bird or after I see the bird, not... When I'm actively seeing the bird, when I'm actively seeing the bird, I feel like that's not the sounds I have associated with that memory. Um, and so to me, it's something that has just come or is just going somewhere. So it's something in motion. 
off to the side of me, but it also then it is life that is outside of me. And so it's, it gets me to think about the wider world in a way that I think you get about, you get that feeling sometimes when you're just feeding pigeons, um, or ducks as, as you and I used to do or something else. But uh, what do you think about the title? Well, I think that's a great observation, right? That the sound and the image of wings are two distinct things in our experience of birds, right? We're just thinking of of hearing a bird landing or knowing, hearing even a bird just fly by, right? We hear it before we see it, uh, unless it's accidental, right? Uh, and I think that is reinforced here in the issue where the sound of her wings, the sound of death's wings uh, is something that happens when we're not actually seeing images of wings, or even when we are as readers, uh, it happens when dream is not looking at them. And so it is the sound of her coming and it is the sound of her going, right? So it is the sound then reinforces, again, I think another image, a sort of auditory image, I guess, of of the cycle of life and and death right the both the coming and the the going uh, but it also i think works here right as as a metaphor right the whole issue is about dream figuring out his life because he spent the day with death and it is the sound of her wings as we're we're really clearly told by using it in the last line of the issue the sound of her wings becomes a metaphor for his figuring that out as well so glenn what is your favorite panel for this issue the the panel that actually I've picked as my favorite actually is one that has uh, the sound of her wings and an image of a wing and also uh, dream and how he's experiencing that. Though I hadn't done that intentionally to to reinforce uh, our conversation about the the title. The panel that I have picked is on the top of the page after Harry has died. Uh, and I'll say that I can't give you a page number, Brent, and I don't know if you noticed this, but there are no page numbers in this specific issue. There are bubbles where they should go, but they aren't there. And I don't know if that was a conscious decision, if that was an error in some way. Uh, but that was something that jumped out to me uh, when I went to go do this, because normally we give the page number. I don't have it for this one. So it's the one where Dream is standing by himself and hears the beating of Mighty Wings? That's right. This is Dream standing in front of a blue background with what I guess looks to be black that has been sponge painted on the blue. And the text is, she draws him close. From the darkness, I hear the beating of mighty wings. And right, it's, it's, she draws Harry close. And then I dream here from the darkness, the beating of, of death's mighty wings. I love that phrase. But then what I really love about this is that when you take another look at the art, you actually realize that the black is death's wing, right? It looks like the feathers of a black bird, like a crow or a raven that is, is spread out as it is, is, is taking off, as it is going into flight. And I had not thought about this before because I really was thinking of the wings on the cover as having the kind of shape that suggested butterfly wings to me. But you mentioned a dove. And I think I like that reading better because it then contrasts with what we see here, right? If we're thinking of, of a dove wing, a white wing, as a real contrast to the black wing of a raven, this is something that actually is in the, the Noah story, for example, also in, in Gilgamesh, which also has a flood story with, with birds, where we get the contrast of the, the dove that is meant to, to signify uh, 
peace and and harmony uh, among other things, and, and maybe it's even even kind of the goodness of life, and the raven that is meant to to contrast with that. Uh, that might be an, a move here that's being done intentionally. Uh, but even just at the end of the day here, I just think this is an absolutely gorgeous image. This again is a, a prime candidate for some wall art for me. I tried to think about what to make of the fact that Dream is not actually looking at them. And I don't think it's that he's necessarily terrified of her, although you could have that interpretation that, you know, her actual function because of what it is. And as we'll see more as we go on, kind of how that relates to him. But I think it could also be interpreted that it's just, it's a very personal thing that now Harry is experiencing with death. And maybe it's not for Dream to see. Maybe, you know, Dream and the Dreamlands have responsibility for maybe all of the creative ideas, whether you're awake or asleep, or stories that we tell and share or forget in the morning. And he has domain over that, but maybe he doesn't have domain to know what's the next thing. Or it could just be that he's still kind of focused on his own thing. Although, based on the word balloons and the descriptors being not a third-person narration here, but actually Dream's internal thought of what he's hearing, I think he's focused on what she's doing, but the decision for him perhaps to look away is an interesting one for me. Yeah, I wondered if this was a, a, an issue of respect, right? That you don't look at her while she's actually doing her thing or or don't look at her while she is taking her true form or something like that. I mean, I don't, we don't know yet if that's a thing and we may never find out if that's a, a, a good way to even be talking about the endless. But yes, the, the looking away, I think was something that jumped out to me originally, but it especially jumped out to me when you were talking about your experience and, and really, I think universally our experience of the sound of birds being something that we hear when we're not looking at them uh, most frequently. Anyway, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's just a great image. I love this one. Uh, what was your favorite panel? Uh, my favorite panel had to be and there were a lot that i liked in this one but um it had to be it was a panel on page five i think if i'm counting right uh, and then it is the one where she says peachy keen in all caps with an exclamation point uh with sunglasses on her face um and smiling and also lighting up in a way that i believe i i'd have to look back and i don't have the time to do it for all of them but i feel like this is the most anime pose I've seen death ever in um, of the excited, happy character, which I feel I've seen in so many bits of animation since 1989. Um, but I don't know if I've seen before, but it, I had mentioned the beginning, this comic feels to me very light. The coloration is very light and that it's kind of um, a celebration of life in many ways and in stark contrast to where we've been before in the prior seven issues. But as we were talking through it again, I, I forget every time about how dark it gets in the middle in some ways for the fact that, you know, you have this, this, this infant who suddenly passes away and the mother is left alone to deal with that, at least uh, in that panel um, and how kind of much that is the domain of despair, a character we have not met yet, but, I'm left with this idea of this comic, of this particular issue being kind of light and breezy, I think because of these first few pages and the last like page or two. And it 
so much so that it overshadows my memory, even recalling how devastating the panels, particularly with the, the infant, are. But I just really love this image. Um, and I think for a little while I even had it, uh, or I had one of the page earlier when she's sitting, um, silently next to Dream and he's feeding pigeons, um, as my wallpaper for a long time in undergrad uh, on my computer, on my old compact. But, um, I just love this image of death and this very much announces the arrival of like, this is not the kind of anthropomorphic personification of death that you have ever encountered before, particularly in comics medium where oftentimes death is just, you know, either riding a pale horse or a malevolent force or, you know, seeking to expand her armies. Like it's just like, nope. Here's someone yelling peachy keen because they're because they're she's trying to explain what supercalifragilisticexpialidocious means. Right. This is an emblematic image of the idea of death as as a friend, death as a kind of boon, going back to this Egyptian poem. Something else I really love actually about this image, maybe more comes from the preceding panel, but the sunglasses that she's putting on, uh, she has materialized out of nowhere, much like Dream does with his helmet. So this is like just a cool feature that you get if you're a member of the Endless family. But I guess it draws for me at least a one-to-one comparison between Dream's ominous like battle helmet and her sunglasses, her perfectly mundane sunglasses. <laughs> yep, her perfectly mundane sunglasses and an onk, and that's pretty much the only accessories that she needs. Well, I think this is probably a good note on which to wrap up this episode, so I can use a little bit of my time today to go uh, to go accessorize for myself. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of The Sound of Her Wings. What lesson do you think that Dream took from this uh, this day spent hanging out with his sister, Death? Uh, we'd love to have this conversation with you. And next time, as a special treat, we will have a wrap-up episode of the Preludes and Nocturnes first Sandman collection. We'll be revisiting some of the highs, some of the lows. Uh, again, many times probably inquiring who the real protagonist is in this series. And we'll talk about some of the background characters. I think we'll, we'll pick out some, some favorites, favorite characters, favorite single issues, and so on. We'll also talk about uh, some an aspect of the presentation of this story arc that we haven't talked about at all yet, which is uh, some of the material that only appears in the, the graphic novel, things that didn't go into any of the single issue comics. So there's a, for example, there's a, a quotation at the beginning of the volume that you would not have encountered if you had only read this story as single issue comics. We'll talk about the the choice of cover for the volume. Uh, and we've got a lot of other things in store as well. It's going to be a fun episode. Uh, it'll be great to, to really talk about this story arc as a whole. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, pleasant dreams.